With the world becoming increasingly unpredictable when it comes to your family's health, proactivity is key. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit contains eight essential medications like ivermectin, amoxicillin, and z Rest easy knowing that their chief medical team, including Dr. Peter McCullough, stand behind every kit. Visit twc.health slash Prager. Use the promo code Prager for an exclusive 10% discount. Don't take chances. Secure your family's health today with The Wellness Company. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. All righty, everybody. Welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. About twice a year, I embarrass this man across the Atlantic by praising him so highly that it takes him about half a year to recuperate. <laughs> <laughs> From the laugh, I guess you recuperate faster than, I, <laughs> than I'm assuming. <laughs> he is Paul Johnson, one of the absolute eminent thinkers and historians living on this planet at this time. And I, I, I don't want to gush beyond that lest I uh, overwhelm all of us. But uh, it is, it's truly, I think everybody knows my voice, or my listeners do, an, an honor for me to always have you on. And you've now uh, written uh, yet another wonderful book, George Washington, The Founding Father. And I always love it when you write about American topics because you bring to it the outsider's clarity and yet a deep love and admiration for the American experiment. Is that a fair way of, of, of explaining you and America? Well, uh, yes, I think it is. Um, you see, my publishers in New York said to me, uh, we discover young people today don't know enough about George Washington. And we think the reason is that the books about Washington are so long, many of them in multi-volume shape. Do you think you could do George Washington for us in 40,000 words? Uh, so I agreed to do it, and I did it, and this is the book. I, I might add, forgive me for this, because this, this is one of my uh, standing on a, uh, on a chair and just screaming my, my guts out, but I believe that that is a major problem. Length of books has been a major problem in alienating people from required information for some time now. And you're right, there is a seven-volume, I believe it is, and it's a magisterial work by Flexner, seven volumes on George Washington. But outside of a handful of, of academics, I don't, I don't know who will read that. And, and we need those books. But we need somebody to make him accessible in, four, as you put it, 40,000 words, which is how many pages? What does that well, come it's to? 120 pages. Yeah, that, that's great. That's what, that should almost be required. Now, first of all, I'll ask you about that length. Was it hard to do in 120 pages? Well, I've done a number of such books. I've done Napoleon at the same length, and Mm -hmm. I've done a little book on the Renaissance. And I find it can be done, and uh, I've I've got quite a skillful at it. I mean, I've written a number of books of over a 1,000 pages. Right. And they are very hard work. But some of these short books are great fun to write because uh, the, the, the shortage of space you're given 
forces you That's to think right. very sharply. That's right. Exactly right. I so believe in that. Now, why did you take on the task of George Washington? It wasn't merely to, to, to be of service to the young American who, or other who doesn't know about him. Do you well, ad- admiration, really. You see, I think America has been a very lucky country, uh, both in the country that God gave them uh, and the men God gave them when they were founded. But above all, I think they were lucky in Washington. And I don't think there can have been many men in world history who both proved themselves to be a first-class general and then a first-class statesman. Uh, And curiously enough, uh, when he had rendered all his services as a general and proposed to return to his estates, uh, his old enemy, George III, said, Uh, to the president of the Royal Academy, who was an American, um, what do you think General Washington will do now? Uh, And the president of the Academy said, he will, sir, he will return to his estates. And uh, George III said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man alive. Because the equivalent in English history, Oliver Cromwell, had gone on to become a kind of military dictator. Uh, George Washington was too humble and too constitutional-minded to do that. He returned to his estates and waited to be summoned by Congress. Mm. Why is he? Why are we so la- lucky to have had him? Is that the primary reason? Because well, uh, that I think is the, the 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 fact that he was a general who then went on to be a first class constitutional uh, leader, president. Um, <coughs> it is the first double reason, but the second reason I think was that he was also typical. Uh, of uh, the best kind of American in making the fullest possible use of his opportunities. He um, inherited quite large estates, and he received many more by virtue of his wife uh, and through his own endeavors. But he went on to develop them. And this is a side of Washington which I think is not sufficiently known. He was one of the the greatest farmers America has ever had, and by the end of his life was one of the richest men in the country. But he'd done this by hard work in developing his estates using the very latest methods and instruments of agricultural science. What do we know about him uh, personally? What, what sort of uh, Well, man? Uh, we know a great deal in one sense, that he left more papers than anyone else of his time, uh, and they're all there in the National Archives and in the Library. More Congress. papers in, in what? In, in, uh, personal papers from diaries from the end, age of uh, 14. He and kept, he kept, kept a, what, practically what, every letter he sent or received. So, I mean, in, in that sense, he's very well documented. But in another sense, he's a very elusive man. He didn't easily unbend. Uh, he's a difficult man to work out the psychology he possessed and so forth. Uh, and he baffled a lot of his contemporaries. Well, how did he baffle them? In what, in what way did he baffle them? Because of what? <laughs> well, they couldn't quite make him out. Uh, some of them, those closest to him, particularly those who fought with him in the war, thought he was a very great man. They were very clear on that. 
that he was a good man and a great man and a very intelligent man. <laughs> Others, such as his vice president, John Adams, underrated him. Hmm. Adams thought he was um, a very foolish fellow who'd been extremely lucky and uh, had managed to survive more by bluff uh, than by uh, uh, great intelligence or ability. And he tended to ridicule him and so forth. Sounds and like I suppose others did that. But um, the truth of the matter is um, he was a man of very great ability. Was he a man of great intellect? I wouldn't say intellect in the sense that he was not an intellectual. He wasn't interested in ideas. He was interested in practicalities. But he had a library of 750 books, which was quite a lot for those days. <coughs> and um, I think he'd read most of them. He'd certainly consulted all of them. Was he a religious man? Not particularly. I mean, he was a religious man for social reasons. He attended his church and he sat on uh, the local uh, uh, governing board and so on. But he was not a man who automatically uh, went to church every Sunday. He did as a rule, but by no means automatically. Was he a believing... And I don't think uh, that his uh, nature was a very spiritual one. If anything... Uh, he was a very conscientious Freemason. He, uh, masonry was an important part of his life. As it was for many of the leaders, interestingly. Uh, indeed, yes. 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 But I would say that he was typical of his time in that the late 18th century was a very secular age. It wasn't a spiritual age. And yet he invoked God in his inaugural address. And, 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 yes, and, he invoked God in both senses. He uh, invoked God for uh, rhetorical reasons and also for cursing reasons. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he would say things like um, to his cabinet when they made life difficult for him, by God, sirs, I will retire to my estates if you're not careful. Oh, and then that, uh, that somehow ticked off the, uh, the the more religious it was felt that he had used god's name in vain yes yeah was he a believing christian would you say that oh i'm sure he was uh and he was a believing christian he believed in god and in christ uh, but he also believed that religion was an extremely important force in life it was a form of social control it made people better than they would be otherwise and therefore more easily uh, governed and better citizens he took uh, what you might call a pragmatic view of religion i'm speaking to paul johnson and he, everything he writes is self-recommending i mean if he wrote a history of rhododendrons i would have him on the, but this is about, uh, of course, the father of our country, George Washington, the founding father. It's just 120 pages, distilled wisdom. We will return, and if you'd like to speak to Paul Johnson, here's a rare opportunity, 1-8-Prager-776, The Dennis Prager Show. All righty, y'all, you're listening to The Dennis Prager Show. My guest is the eminent, if not preeminent, historian, writer, thinker of our time, Paul Johnson. And his uh, latest book is George Washington. It's 120 pages. It's a series called Eminent Lives. It's an important series, and it's a very important book. And if you, like me, don't have the time to read uh, many books that are very long, this is perfect as an introduction or an, a summary of George Washington's life. 
1-8 Prager 776 if you'd like to ask some questions. What is uh what is your take on George Washington and the issue of slavery? Uh well, George Washington like uh, many Virginian gentlemen uh had a lot of slaves, but he also disapproved of slavery. And the last years of his life <coughs> were spent in devising means whereby he could free his slaves. Of course, other people did this uh, or wanted to do, like Jefferson planned to release his phrase. But his, gen- his debts were so great uh, that he couldn't do it. And when he died, when Jefferson died, all the slaves were sold down the river and their families split up. Now, Washington didn't have debts or very few because he was very prudent about money. So uh, under his will, the, the, the slaves were eventually freed. And that was uh, almost uh, unique at the time, I think. So that's my take on his uh, view of slavery. He thought that slavery was inefficient and wicked. And wicked. <laughs> and wicked, yes. Mm-hmm. Did Jefferson think it was wicked? Uh, he said so, yes. He certainly said so, but he... Um, he got himself into such financial difficulties mm-hmm. that he was never able to do anything about it, unfortunately. This is just a bit on a tangent, but I had reported recently of a school, uh, understandably in Berkeley, California, and I'm sure you know of its reputation, that had uh, now voted to change its name from Jefferson High School uh, to uh, to another name because Jefferson owned slaves. Why would you respond to those to the people who uh, well, I think that's unhistorical because in Jefferson's day, someone from his uh, social and <coughs> geographical background would have owned slaves, uh, and uh, it's to Jefferson's credit that he wanted to end the institution. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to do it in his case because he spent too much money on books uh, and on architecture. Uh, but I don't think it's right uh, to hand that against him. And I think Jefferson had many other great qualities, which played a very, very important part uh, in the history of America, in the founding mm-hmm. of the history of America. And there wouldn't, without Jefferson or without people like Washington, there wouldn't be a Berkeley University today. <laughs> right. That, that's that's correct. But they don't want to acknowledge that. One eight Prager seven seven six. And let's go to uh, Irvine, Irvine, California, and Joe. Hello, Joe. You're on with Paul Johnson and Dennis Prager. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Mr. Johnson. Uh, Mr. Johnson, I heard an anecdote that during the Continental Congress, uh, Washington would show up every day wearing his general's uniform, and then when he was appointed president or leader, he was, oh, you mean me? And he was kind of campaigning through his uniform. Any truth to that? Oh, boy, I see the problem here. We, Sean, we have but to then, put up... Uh, or rather, wearing his uniform. He wasn't then a general. Um, but he uh, was entitled to do that uh, and uh, because he had rendered great services already in the field. Uh, and what is more, he wanted to make the point uh, that, uh, if necessary, uh, the uh, 13 states had to go to war against Britain in uniform to prove it. So it wasn't anything frivolous and it wasn't egotistical. It was a practi- he was a practical man and this was a practical gesture. This may be sacrilegious to some, but, is, but in your description, I was wondering if an analogy in any way to Ronald Reagan would be appropriate? 
Uh, well, he had certain things in common with Reagan. Uh, George Washington had three or four very simple, clear ideas about his duty, uh, and he pushed them for all they were worth. Uh, I think Mr. Reagan was a similar character. He also had three or four fundamental ideas about life and politics and pushed them for all they were worth. And, of course, that often makes a very successful politician. That and uh, when you when you spoke of John Adams' dismissal of him, it was it reminded me immediately of many of those who dismissed Ronald Reagan, as and, and that's what brought that to mind. Yes, because Ronald Reagan was not an intellectual, nor was right. George Washington. Right. But then, in my experience, going back over fifty years and covering a lot of countries, intellectuals do not make good, successful politicians. Right or leaders. Yeah, yes, yes. yes. I mean, because people might say, well, of course not politicians because they pander. But, I mean, they're just not great leaders. They're not usually good politicians. Also, religiously, it sounds similar. They're both God-centered, believing Christians, but not terribly overtly religious. Uh, Yes, that's true. But they both, I think, believed that Christianity was absolutely essential Mm -hmm. uh, for the American nation and that it made a much better nation in consequence. That's exactly right. Now, did people in Washington's time know they were with greatness? Sorry, did they? Did they know that they were in the presence of greatness? Oh, I think there's absolutely no doubt about that. Washington traveled over most of what was then the United States, and everywhere he was greeted. He was greeted uh, both as the hero of the Revolutionary War, but also as the president of the United States uh, and as a great man. And I think nobody who was ever in his presence uh, left it without feeling he'd been with a great man who was also a simple man. What was his family life like, in other words, vis-a-vis his parents and his wife? Well, he had uh, no children. Right, that's why I said it that way. Uh, his mother was very important, much more so than his father. His wife was very important. He had no children, but he had a lot of uh, uh, children who were closely related to him. And, so, and he used to have them at Mount Vernon. Uh, and uh, they were very delighted to go because Mount Burton was a magical place then, as indeed it still is today. Uh, And so he was always surrounded by young people, uh, and they loved him because he was kind to them, he enjoyed their company, he liked them, he took them out riding with him or on the river, uh, and uh, he was a paterfamilias, even though he had no children of his own. Would he be surprised at how great America became? No, because he, that's what he thought America had. Now, he lived uh, half a century before the phrase manifest destiny was coined. But in a sense, <coughs> he was a precursor of that. The real reason why he uh, broke with Britain and thought it was essential uh, that America should uh, uh, take the sword against Britain was because Britain, in his view, uh, was going to uh, thwart this manifest destiny by forbidding the American states to expand beyond the Alleghenies to go into the Mm. Mississippi Valley and the Great Plains. We continue in a moment. Paul Johnson, the book, George Washington. I'm Dennis Prager. 
George Washington is the subject, and my guest is Paul Johnson. One of the great thinkers and historians of our time has just written a 120-page book. And I love those books because it means that every word matters. George Washington, the Founding Father. And it is a wonderful way to introduce yourself or to get the insights of a great thinker about George Washington. It'll be up at the DennisPrager.com website. The phone number to speak to Paul Johnson, who is in London, is 18Prager776. 18Prager776. When Washington took over as general, did he believe he'd win? I think he did, because uh, what he thought was that he had only to keep uh, the army in being uh, and the government in being uh, long enough for the British to lose heart. He felt that time was on his side, so he didn't mind too much if he met with physical reverses, lost battles or skirmishes, or had to retreat. So long as he could keep the army together and keep the congressional government protected and in being, he knew that the 13 states would win in the end. So I think he was a very cautious optimist. Now, you were saying, because this this subject has always fascinated me, what exactly were Americans rebelling against? They thought they were conservatives who were resisting innovation. Uh, And this was particularly uh, what George Washington himself thought. He believed, as did most Americans, that they had had a form of self-government right from the beginning in the early 17th century. In other words, they'd had it for the best part of two centuries. Uh, and that they were entitled to go on governing themselves and raising taxes as they thought fit. They thought that the British government was the aggressor. That was uh, that was the force which was trying to upset things, to take uh, bring about a revolution, to limit their liberties and remove their rights. So they were the, as it were, the constitutional. Uh, force. They were the conservative force, and the British were the usurpers and the aggressors. That gave them a great sense of moral self-righteousness, which was uh, extremely important in holding them together and making them fight. And what did the British believe? Uh, Was it moral self-righteousness or simply this is our imperial domain and we're not going to let it leave? No, the British were divided. Uh, uh, George III and his ministers felt that they had an absolute right uh, over their colonial subjects. The word subject is very important. They felt they had absolute rights. But there were a great many other uh, English politicians, such as Edmund Burke, who thought that was quite wrong, and their sympathies were fundamentally uh, with the colonists, with the rebels, as they were called, Mm -hmm. um, because they saw that they admitted most of the American case. So the British were divided from the beginning, and they became more divided the longer the war lasted. And George Washington was proved right that in the end, the British would lose heart, and of course they did. Mm-hmm. We'll continue on that in a moment. I, I have all, there's something I've always wondered about, and I have no idea if we know the answer to this. Why don't all Americans talk like you do? Why don't all Americans talk like I do? Yeah. Uh, because Americans tended to talk like English people did in the early 17th That's century. That's right, exactly. Why did it change? Oh. 
Why did so, it change? Uh, and, the, and there again, uh, both as they were more conservative in the war, um, so they're more conservative in the way they pronounce the English language. That's my theory, anyway. So you mean you mean we correct. you mean Americans deliberately changed their accent? No, I'm saying that Americans uh, had the original American accent was the English accent of the early 17th century, and they kept it because they were so conservative. It was the English who changed. Oh, you mean I speak like your ancestors spoke? We developed more quickly in terms of changing our accent. The Americans stuck to the original ones. I've never heard that. That is fascinating. I believe that to be true. So you believe that I speak more like a 17th century Englishman than you do? Yes, exactly. Wow, that's absolute and revelation. So do most Americans. <laughs> yes, no, obviously, yes. That is so interesting. We'll be back in a moment. I, I, I asked the right man. We're going to take your calls. A, it's a rare opportunity to speak to such a thinker. Secondly, it's about George Washington. Whatever is on your mind on that subject, 1-8-Prager-776. I cannot commend the book too highly. Paul Johnson's George Washington, the Founding Father, a 120-page understanding of the man. We'll be back in a moment on The Dennis Prager Show. Did you know that close to 90% of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. are produced outside of the U.S.? So what happens when the next global crisis strikes? Countries clamp down on exports, they stockpile, the prices of drugs rise, and the pharmaceutical shelves in America are empty. That's where the Wellness Company can help. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit holds eight life-saving medications that every American should keep in his or her home. If you have Tylenol, you should have this kit. The kit contains antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics like amoxicillin, ivermectin, z and more. It also includes a 22-page guidebook with instructions on safe usage. From benign tick bites to extreme bioterror events, every scenario is covered. Head to twc.health slash Prager and grab your medical emergency kit. That's twc.health slash Prager. Code Prager to save 10% at checkout. This is the emergency kit that you want to have on hand. Be safe, be prepared, and stay well. Kits are only available in the USA. Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here. We've been getting terrific feedback concerning these periodic hours that I devote to history because you know my belief if you know history you you can begin to understand the present or to put it in the negative if you don't know history you can't understand the present and I I'll be a little uh, aggressive here I don't understand not wanting to know history I don't I don't get it I understand where people like me are not thrilled with mathematics for example Although I did have a professor of mathematics from Berkeley on the show, because I, I want I want to fall in love with math too. Why not? If it's out there, I'd like to love it. But history should be self-recommending. This is what happened, and especially though not only American history, we are Americans. What happened? How did we get formed? <laughs> it would seem to me to be a, a burning question. I I certainly have it. And so I, I am delighted to welcome uh, t- today uh, Professor John Furling, F-E-R-L-I-N-G. He's a professor emeritus of history at the University of West Georgia. And his book, and what we try to do is feature brand new books on history. There are magnificent books written 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 
but I'm trying to give the brand new authors or the brand new books, I should say, uh, their time in the sun. He has written this book, Jefferson and Hamilton, The Rivalry That Forged a Nation. Two of the founders of this country hated each other. It's as simple as that. It's not only that, but that is the case, not not only personally, but philosophically. And, and that's what this book is about. And it is, of course, up at DennisPrager.com, Jefferson and Hamilton. So, Professor John Furling, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Well, thank you for having me. It's it's a delight, sir. Uh, just a word. I uh, You know what I love? I love when uh, universities that we're not all familiar with produce uh, works like your your book and so on. I have found in the course of my broadcast career that unlike when I was at college where you had a handful of colleges that you expected to or universities that you expected to produce uh, the, the scholars of the country, today that is no longer the case. So I'm not surprised that someone of your caliber is at a university we're not all familiar with, University of West Georgia. Now, if you'd like to comment on that, that's fine, and if not, we'll just go to the book. Well, no, I, I think that's true. I think it's been uh, uh, a matter of the uh, job market over the last uh, 40 years or so has, has been such that uh, uh, people have wound up at, at schools, uh, smaller schools all around the country, and those who, who wanted to be productive uh, were able to be productive. The schools uh, oftentimes uh, did what they could to facilitate their, their productivity. So I think all around the country uh, you find people producing, obviously, at Harvard and Yale, but you find uh, good scholars, good historians, good political scientists and whatever at, uh, at state colleges and small private uh, schools all around the country. It is, yeah. it is a different world. Yeah, today. it is, and, and that's, a healthy, that's a much healthier thing. Yeah, it is. And, I mean, I have big problems with universities on, on other issues, but the, the level of scholarship that we, we have today is very high, uh, and it doesn't matter where they are. That, and, and you're a living example of that. How many years were you at the University of West Virginia? West Georgia. I, I'm sorry. Well, yeah. Well, yeah West, I, I, I was, you uh, know what? You know what kills me because I am sure a lot of people do that, and I hate making the same mistake everybody does. Well, that, that's right. I attended West Virginia. Oh, that must drive you nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I root for the Mountaineers in football, but I taught at uh, at the University of West Georgia for 33 years. Wow. wow. Where is it located? It's out in the uh, western exurbs of Atlanta in a town uh, named Carrollton. It, it was founded uh, when uh, the last surviving uh, signer of the Declaration of Independence was Charles Carroll of Carrollton, and they established the county in the late 1820s and named the county for him and the town for Okay, for him. I got you. Yeah. All right, so... Was I correct in saying, to begin with, that Jefferson and Hamilton despised each other both personally and philosophically? I think you were pretty much right on, on target. They, they had a, a bitter relationship. Both of them claimed uh, that uh, they, they were only rivals politically, but I think it went deeper than that. And I think you were right on target. Now... In a nutshell, and then we'll certainly uh, obviously make that a bigger than a nutshell because that's what your book is about, 
what did they represent each? What did each represent philosophically? Well, uh, Jefferson uh, was in favor of a small, uh, unobtrusive uh, government. Uh, he wanted to uh, uh, maintain uh, the, uh, the agrarian uh, nature of the economy. I think he, he had visions of it taking two or three hundred years to advance from the Appalachians to, uh, to the Pacific Ocean, and that during all of that time, 95% of the people would, would remain farmers. And Hamilton favored uh, a much stronger... A government, a government that could uh, foster uh, a development of, uh, I hate to say industrialization, because that, that wasn't really a term that they, that they used, but, but would make the uh, country more productive. And more than anything, Hamilton uh, was uh, uh, pushing uh, to make the United States strong enough that it, it not only could stand on its own two feet, uh, against the predatory powers in Europe, but that it it would be uh, it would have the power to uh, continue to expand and uh, drive some of the smaller uh, powers like Spain out of uh, of the uh, periphery of the United States. Do do, do my listeners and uh, me a favor because I, I think that most Americans don't realize how important Hamilton was to the founding of the nation. And, and maybe because he, he was, well, A, do you think I'm right? And B, if I'm right, why do you think that's happened? That people don't understand Yes, that, how important uh, Hamilton was to yeah. the founding. Uh, well, I, I think we tend to probably focus on uh, presidents, and he was, he was never a president. He was a member of a cabinet. He was Washington's secretary of the, of the Treasury. Uh, his life was cut short uh, in that duel with Aaron Burr in uh, 1804. He was only in his, his mid-40s when he, when he died in that duel. And so I think all of those things have conspired to uh, 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 kind of obliterate his uh, his image. And it it really wasn't until uh, almost 100 years, probably about 75 years after his death in the late uh, 19th century, as the country really began to urbanize and industrialize, that his uh, reputation began to to be rehabilitated. He was almost forgotten uh, until then, and and I think too uh, one one other factor was that the the political party uh, of which he was a part, the Federalist Party, collapsed uh, not long after his death, and so he didn't have a uh, there wasn't a political party there to, to beat the drums uh, for for Hamilton. All right, so tell us then in a nutshell, what did he do that is so monumental? Well, I think uh, there were a number of things, no, no, no one thing. He served in the, in the Continental Army for about seven years during the, the Revolutionary War. He was a, a valorous soldier who, who uh, saw, came in, into combat on a number of, of occasions. He was a delegate from New York to the Constitutional Convention. Didn't play a particularly big role at the Constitutional Convention, but he did play 
an extremely important role in the ratification of the Constitution. He, he wrote the lion's share of the essays in the Federalist Papers, and it turned out that New York was an absolutely key state in securing the ratification of the Constitution, and no one played a bigger role in New York than Hamilton. But the biggest thing I think that Hamilton did was he was Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, and he served in, in that position from 1789 to uh, 1795. And the country had... had um... Hold on, I want you to tell us about that when we get back, because okay. I want people to understand how big Hamilton was. Jefferson and Hamilton, the rivalry that forged the nation. And was, one thing I'm going to ask the professor is, was their debate relevant to our debates today in the way we construct them as conservative and liberal? The book Jefferson and Hamilton, up at DennisPrager.com. My friends, this is a periodic journey to history, a history hour on the Dennis Prager Show, where I feature recently published books, brand new books on some aspect of history. Jefferson and Hamilton, the rivalry that forged the nation, they were huge rivals on both a personal and philosophical level, professor of history at the University of West Georgia, John Furling has written the book. And again, it is called Jefferson and Hamilton, and it is up at DennisPrager.com. And I, the last thing that I had asked the professor was Hamilton's contribution, because Hamilton is, I think, the least sung founder that we have, the most unsung, if you will. And, uh, you were mentioning that he was a delegate of New York State, which was critical to the Constitutional Convention. He wrote the lion's share of the essays in the Federalist Papers. I mean, even if he had only done that, he would be huge. But even bigger than all of that is as Secretary of Treasury under George Washington. And go on. Yeah, that was the key position in Washington's cabinet. At least that was how contemporaries saw it. Because the uh, economy had absolutely collapsed during the Revolutionary War. We, we were essentially a bankrupt nation. We were deeply in debt. We had borrowed a considerable amount of, of money, especially from France, a little bit from Spain and, and Holland during the, the Revolutionary War. That had to be paid back. Uh, citizens were owed uh, money uh, uh, from uh, bonds and, and securities that they had purchased during the war to finance the war. And uh, there had to be some way to, to resolve that issue. So everybody recognized that the Treasury uh, Department was going to be the key uh, position in Washington's cabinet. And, in fact, it, it was given... Uh, almost ten times as many employees as the State Department had initially. And Hamilton was named uh, Secretary of the Treasury. He had been an aide-de-camp to Washington during the Revolutionary War. They were close. Washington recognized Hamilton's brilliance. And uh, Hamilton proposed a series of programs designed to extricate the country from its, its economic woes. And uh, those programs were passed by, by Congress, and 
uh, essentially, in a nutshell, to summarize it in about 15 seconds, his program, uh, his, his basic program was, was called a funding program, which created a new debt by selling securities to the public uh, to raise money and to pay off the, uh, the old debt. And it worked. And, and where, where was the government going to get the money to pay back those securities? Uh, well, but people were buying the the securities, and uh, the government then would just keep uh, selling uh, securities, and and as the economy would begin to flourish, uh, their uh, money would be coming in, and the government passed an uh, what was called an impost, which was a revenue tariff on goods that were coming into the country. That was the primary. Uh, money-raising uh, program. But there were land sales and things of that sort as well. So that, that right. generated the money to pay off. By the way, in light of that, would you say that the average American knew that Hamilton had saved the country economically? Uh, I think some people did. uh, uh, uh I'm not sure the average person did. Well, the average person may not have followed. But, right, the, yeah, the, but but people yes. well-informed people understood. Okay, that. in yes. light of that, was there talk of Hamilton ever running for president? Uh, not really. I think the 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 was that because he was born outside of the United States? No, no. That be because uh, actually somebody wrote me a. Uh, an email about that yesterday and ask uh, ask that question and uh, in fact uh, uh, the founding generation excluded themselves from that that restriction because they were all born outside the United States because the U.S. didn't exist until 1776 so they were all born in the British colonies or somewhere else no I think it was just that there was a, an assumption that John Adams was the heir apparent. Uh, he he was uh, mm-hmm. uh, well established. He had played a great role in the Revolutionary War. Very sacrificial uh, role uh, in Congress and abroad for for many years. And so the feeling was that that if Washington ever stepped down, Adams okay. would be next. So line. okay, so there yeah. was an heir apparent. Fair right. enough. All right, before we get to Jefferson, after all, the book is Jefferson and, and Hamilton. <laughs> I, I, I don't think most people know that. I think a lot of people remember from high school history that uh, Hamilton and Burr had a duel. Right. Uh, what was the duel over? Well, uh, the, I think the simple thing is that... Uh, uh, Hamilton was quoted in a New York newspaper of having made some vicious uh, private or comments about Burr's private life. He made them at a dinner party in Albany early in 1804, got into the newspapers. Burr found out about it. Burr asked Hamilton to apologize, and Hamilton refused. And so the, the skids were greased for for a duel. But the the longer story is that they they had been political rivals for about twenty years, and Hamilton had worked successfully to prevent Burr from becoming vice president back in the 1790s. Then worked to prevent Burr from becoming president in 1800, and then worked successfully to keep Burr from being elected governor of New York. <laughs> 
1804. So there was a deadly political rivalry between the two, though I think uh, at bottom, Burr uh, could accept the political rivalry, but what he could not accept, what he thought was out of bounds, was for someone like Hamilton or anybody to question his private life. And he was uh, he was very a very liberated individual. He was a widower. He was sexually liberated. Had wild parties at at his home, mixed race parties, and and whatever. And uh, I think he, he felt that that was his business and it was off-limits for anyone to, to question that. And that's what he wanted an apology uh, from Hamilton for. He believed that Hamilton had raised some of those questions in his comments about his private life. Did Hamilton think he would prevail in a duel? Well, that's a that's a good question. All right, answer I, it when we come back. Hold on, because I want to tell everybody again. The book is Jefferson and Hamilton. Obviously, we're going to get to Jefferson momentarily. The subtitle, though, tells you what it's about, the rivalry that forged the nation. And that is largely true. Just their rivalry alone, philosophical and personal matters. We will return. The book is up at DennisPrager.com. I'm Dennis Prager. I'm speaking with Professor John Furling, the author. Did you know that close to 90% of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. are produced outside of the U.S.? So what happens when the next global crisis strikes? Countries clamp down on exports, they stockpile, the prices of drugs rise, and the pharmaceutical shelves in America are empty. That's where the Wellness Company can help. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit holds eight life-saving medications that every American should keep in his or her home. If you have Tylenol, you should have this kit. The kit contains antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics like amoxicillin, ivermectin, z and more. It also includes a 22-page guidebook with instructions on safe usage. From benign tick bites to extreme bioterror events, every scenario is covered. Head to twc.health slash Prager and grab your medical emergency kit. That's twc.health slash Prager. Code Prager to save 10% at checkout. This is the emergency kit that you want to have on hand. Be safe, be prepared, and stay well. Kits are only available in the USA. Dennis Prager here, and it's a history hour, bringing to you periodically some new important work of history. Jefferson and Hamilton is the book, The Rivalry That Forged a Nation. And that's true. That rivalry is a, a powerful one in American history. Two powerful men, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. We've been talking about Hamilton, and I, I, I'm going to get to the Jefferson and obviously the nature of their dispute before we run out of time. It's amazing how quickly these hours go. Uh, John Furling is a, a professor emeritus of history, University of West Georgia. And uh, I, I we, just really out of human curiosity, I wanted to understand the dual issue. So he so he did not apologize to Aaron Burr, uh, who, by the way, my uh, my producer, who is an aficionado of American history, described as essentially a pig. <laughs> he thought he thinks he's one of the most corrupt uh, of the uh, of the uh, American politicians of the time, so uh, I'm not putting you on the spot to say yay or nay, but I just wanted to add that for my listeners' uh, edification. 
But in any event, he so he doesn't apologize for things he says about about Burr. That is, Hamilton doesn't. And so uh, they go to a duel. And I asked you, did Hamilton think he would win? Well, I, uh, it, it's it's not clear really what what Hamilton was was thinking. Uh, I, I, the one thing that I can say with assurance is, is I don't think Burr ever thought that Hamilton would come to the dueling ground. Ham, Hamilton had been involved in in one capacity or another in in about ten previous duels, and in all of them, he managed to wiggle out of the the duels uh, or get them resolved somehow or other without going to to. The field of honor, as as they called it, and in fact, uh, he had come very close to fighting a duel with James Monroe uh, back in the late 1790s, and Burr had been Monroe's second, and Hamilton backed out in that case, and and in fact, before Hamilton backed out, Burr told Monroe, Hamilton will never fight you; he'll he'll back out on it. So I I think when Burr issued the challenge to Hamilton, he never thought that the duel would take place. He, he may have been the most surprised person uh, of all that, that Hamilton did show up, and they did fight the, uh, the duel. Hamilton wrote a letter on, it was the last letter that he wrote, and, um, or one of the last, just a day or two before the duel, and he said in the letter, uh, which was unpublished, that he was going to throw away his first shot and so it became a matter of debate uh, uh subsequently whether he did throw away that that first shot uh or not or whether whether this letter was simply a contrivance to uh give him greater respectability in the event that he he was killed in the duel so no one really knows exactly what was on hamilton's mind when he went to Weehawken for that duel. Okay, I I, I feel bad because I, I want to get back to the rivalry here, but I just have one more question on this. Sure. How did Burr react to killing a man? Well, he doesn't seem to be particularly remorseful huh. uh, about it. Uh, not not wow, at all. He, wow. he wasn't wasn't haunted uh, wow. by it. Uh, uh, at least openly, he wasn't. Uh, so uh, did, did, seems, did, seems to be pretty cold-hearted, and I think it was was a, uh, an indication of the deep, deep feelings that uh, he harbored against Hamilton. It must be. I'll, I'll, I'll say. Did did the country think we lost a good man pointlessly? Well, uh, I think a great many people did, and and even more, I think uh, people uh, were were shocked and outraged about about the dueling. Dueling had had really become uh, popular, particularly among officers in the Continental Army during the war. So, dueling had been going on in this country for about thirty or thirty-five years, and it continued after this, but this was a major step toward eliminating uh, dueling. I would, I would think so. Okay, hold on a moment there. John Furling, professor of history, University of West Georgia. The book Jefferson and Hamilton, the rivalry that forged the nation. And we go to Jefferson when we come back. I could spend the whole time on Hamilton. I admit it. 
but we have to find out where did Jefferson and Hamilton really differ. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. You know of my love of history because I believe that if you don't know what happened, you don't know what's going on. It's as simple as that. I, I, in fact, I don't understand why everybody isn't excited by history. This is what happened before us. It's awesome. I mean, think about it. There's it nothing as exciting. And I like a whole host of subjects, but there's nothing as exciting. So periodically... It's unpredictable, but periodically I'll have what we call a history hour on the show featuring a brand new book of history because I want to I help in my little way or big way or eh, probably middle way people who are writing good works of history at, at, in our time. And I, I really love uh, the newest biographies that come out of the presidents because Obviously, presidents are there's an intrinsic interest in a president of the United States, especially if you're American. But also, my belief is the best way to learn history is through biography, because it's very hard to grasp a big, broad, general macro history as good as they are and as important as they are. So there's a brand new biography out of the sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams. And it is by a terrific biographer, Fred Kaplan, who's also a distinguished professor emeritus of English at Queens College in New York City. And uh, he has now written this biography of John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams. And it is simply subtitled American Visionary. Why Mr. Kaplan thinks that John Quincy Adams is visionary uh, is one of the many questions I have. So first of all, Fred Kaplan, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. I'm delighted to be with you. It's my delight. So uh, I, I am going to start with a micro aspect. You know, the, the man was president, and you'd think my first question would be about his presidency, but I want uh, I want you to relate to my listeners and to me uh, what he endured with the loss of his children. Ah uh, yes, that that is a uh, a story that resonates for all of us because we all experience loss in our lives. John Quincy Adams and his wife Louisa had four children, uh, and of the four of them, three died during their lifetimes. Deeply, deeply painful to both of them. He they had a little daughter, a girl. Uh, who died at the age of one. He was, at the time, a minister to the court of St. Petersburg, uh, a a senior American diplomat representing the United States abroad. And the little girl died after one year, and they were both heartbroken. They was their youngest. They already had three children. And of the three children, uh, the three sons, they all came to adulthood. But two of the three died, and they died in ways that struck deep, deep pain into parents' hearts. Uh, One of the sons committed suicide. At at what age? He was approximately 25, uh, and uh, he had uh, some years of great unhappiness and depression and uh, seemed not to be able to control his, uh, his, his life. 
uh, he, there were great expectations for him. He felt terribly depressed because he couldn't fulfill them. Father and son had both a good relationship and a bad relationship, a good one, and they both loved and admired one another, a bad one in the sense that John Quincy had a pedagogic streak and was always eager to teach people, and sometimes it's not very easy to teach one of your own children, and uh, that became a source of tension to him, to, to both of them, and especially to the boy who committed suicide, jumped from a steamer, uh, steaming uh, from uh, Newport, Rhode Island, down to New York City, where he was on his way. Hmm. And, and how did how did another the son other, die? The other, the, the other son uh, was uh, a uh, uh, afflicted by what was a long-standing condition in the Adams family, and also a long-standing affliction, I should say, in the Adams family, and that was alcoholism. Uh, he died from an alcohol-related uh, illness. How old was he? He was in his early 30s. And uh, left he left two children. The oldest son, George Washington uh, Adams, who committed suicide, was unmarried and left no children. So John Quincy Adams and Louisa had two grandchildren uh, and uh, a daughter-in-law who was a widow. They supported all three of them and helped raise the grandchildren. The uh, youngest son, fortunately, uh, coped with the world very effectively, including coping with his father and mother, and rose to some distinction. Charles Francis Adams became Abraham Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln's ambassador to the court of St. James, to, to England, and had a distinguished career of his own in law, politics, and government. I just wanted people to, to know this because uh, I... I do a lot of work on the subject of happiness, and I do an hour each week on it. I've written a book on it, a lecture on it. And I, one of the themes that I, I point out to people is to understand how ubiquitous suffering is. And, and, you know, you think a man became president of the United States. You can't get a higher position than that really in the world. Uh, and uh, look, look at what he had to suffer. Look at what he went through. So let me ask you this, because you obviously this is you did such copious research on this man's life, John Quincy Adams. How how did uh, his faith play a role in his coping, if if it if at all? Because I know he was a religious man. It played a very strong role, indeed, a very strong role. Uh, John Quincy Adams was immersed in the Judeo-Christian tradition. His practice was to read the Bible in the King James Version. He also read it in other versions and languages, a chapter every day, and then start again. Hmm. But he, he, was, he was not a theological Christian. By that I mean he was not interested in theological disputation. He, he looked to religion for comfort, in suffering, and for ethical guidance. He thought that uh, Christianity uh, was uh, offered more uh, consolation and guidance of an ethical sort than any of the other religions he studied. Because indeed, he was born into a Congregationalist and Protestant Christian world. Uh, he, he was almost non-denominational. 
Yes, he was a loyal member of his family's congregational church in Quincy, Massachusetts, but he went to churches of every denomination. When he lived in Washington, he, he went to Episcopalian uh, services. His wife was an Episcopalian. He went to Presbyterian services, and he went to Unitarian services. And um, in a sense, he liked his religion to be old-fashioned in the Protestant sense, with a little bit of a Calvinistic twist to it. But nevertheless, he enjoyed Unitarian sermons. He went on Sunday to two sermons every day, one in the morning and one in the late afternoon. He wrote in his diary about, uh, he gave a synopsis of the sermon, and he gave his responses to it. And his main interest was in the ethical yeah. of Well, I relate to the I relate I totally relate to him and to the founders. That's exactly what they wanted. You write here his uh, uh you quote him, there is no Christian church with which I could not join in social worship. Exactly. Fellowship was crucial and Yeah, exactly uh, what I and think. Di- and disputation <laughs> Theological disputation. Right was not. Yeah, I, I, I look. I, I love the founders, and I would. I'll, I'll include him, uh, even though he comes later. Okay, so now tell us, because uh, there are so many highlights to this man's life, uh, or and some lowlights, obviously, as for all of us. But I don't think most Americans today realize what a probably the most disputed election, and that may even include uh, uh, Bush-Gore in American history. So tell us about the election of 1824. Well, John Quincy Adams was only the second president. Actually, hold on. Tell us that. Tell us that when we come back. I I, I want people to hear it in in total. It's a fascinating story, and, and it's a fascinating book. The best way to learn history is when it's possible is, in my opinion, through biography. So there's a brand new uh, a brand new biography that has just come out, John Quincy Adams, and uh, uh, he, he's obviously not the first president you think of when you think of presidents. That's a, it's part of the reason I love reading about the, the the if you will the second tier president. Although we'll find out what tier our uh, professor Kaplan thinks he should be on. The book is John Quincy Adams. It is up at DennisPrager.com, and we continue on a history hour. When we come back, hi everybody, Dennis Prager here, and I welcome you back or to the show. Uh, this is a history hour. Periodically, I feature a brand new work of history because I love history because it's the only way to understand. It really is the only way to understand why we are what we are, where we came from. And I don't mean biologically. That really doesn't interest me. I'm not a blood fan, but I'm a history fan. I'm a values fan. And there's brand new work uh, out, a history of the sixth uh, president of the United States, John Quincy Adams. And uh, the author is Fred Kaplan, who's a distinguished professor emeritus of English at Queens College and has really been a biographer his, his whole life. And uh, the uh, we talked about the loss of three of his four children. I mean, think about what the pain he and his wife, Louisa, had gone through. And I began in the micro, and now we're going into the macro. He also was part of the most disputed election, arguably. Perhaps, I, I, I guess, Bush Gore might be up there with that. 
uh, in American history. So this is 1824. He's running against Andrew Jackson and others. So tell us what happened. Uh, John Quincy Adams was only the second president in American history to be elected not by the popular vote and not by the Electoral College, but by the House of Representatives. Thomas Jefferson was the first. No president since 1824 has been elected by the House of Representatives. Uh, He did not receive uh, the majority. Uh, He did not even receive the most of Electoral College votes or popular votes of any of the candidates. Andrew Jackson did. Oh, the race would have been a lot closer if uh, the um, Constitution hadn't provided the southern states or the slave-owning states with extra votes because of the three-fifths rule. But nevertheless, uh, it was something uh, new for the country. Even though Jefferson had been elected by the House of Representatives, the circumstances were really quite different, and it was sort of a freaky thing. Here it was, you know, the real thing. And, uh, of course, uh, Jackson's supporters were utterly furious, particularly because uh, John Quincy Adams received a majority of votes in the House of Representatives when Henry Clay, uh, a terrific uh, uh, American uh, patriot and, uh, and political leader who had been a candidate uh, but was not eligible for the runoff, turned his electoral votes over to John Quincy Adams. So Adams was elected president in circumstances in which a lot of people thought uh, it was illegitimate, it was unwarranted, even though it was perfectly constitutional and they had no grounds for complaint in any legal or constitutional way. They, in fact, felt gypped. And they determined right from the start that they were not going to give John Quincy Adams any victories, any accomplishments in office. So, All right, was, be, be, wait, just to clarify for me, I don't quite understand. He, he ran for president against Andrew Jackson. Who won the electoral vote? Uh, nobody won enough electoral votes to be elected. You must get a majority of the electoral votes to be elected. Uh, that's because there was more than a two-man race. Oh, yes, there were four candidates, including Henry Clay. There were four candidates. Uh, so Jackson uh, came in first, and, and Quincy Adams came in second. That's correct. That's and, right. and, and then, and, oh, so it was, two. well, it were, so it was a runoff, but, oh, but not for the in popular vote. It was a runoff in, oh, in, in the House. in the House of Representatives. I see, yes. okay. That's what the Constitution provides. So why are the Jackson, why are the Jackson people angry as opposed to just, distraught. Uh, Well, well, they were angry because of the the prize that they thought they deserved. All right, so, well, well, that's true for anybody who who wins the electoral vote and loses the electoral college. Well, uh, I'm almost at a loss for words because you're, 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 you're getting me to say Something that, of course, we're all so familiar with, and that is when you think you deserve something and you don't get it, uh, you can act in ways that are irrational okay, and sometimes fine. counterproductive. Yes. All right. I, exactly. I, I understand that. Okay. Very good. All right. So very good. All right. Now let's. All right. So that's so that's how he wins the election, and they and the opposition spends his four years trying to undo everything he does. That's true, and not pass any of his programs. It's right. in addition complicated by the fact that uh, representatives in the House and the Senate 
from the South essentially control uh, Congress. And they're also uneasy with John Quincy Adams getting elected because they believe he is anti-slavery. Even though he has not come out explicitly in public and said, I oppose slavery, I am for emancipation or abolition, he has not come out publicly yet. He did so later in his career and say that. But they had quite correctly the sense that he was he didn't approve of slavery and thought that it should be gradually eliminated as soon as possible, but gradually over time eliminated. And uh, since... Uh, since the the southern um, culture and mentality and political leadership really dominated Washington, as it essentially did from George Washington up until the 16th president, up until Lincoln. It was a very southern-inflected uh, federal government. Uh, and for that reason, too, they were very cautious about John Quincy Adams. So uh, what was Andrew Jackson's views on slavery? Andrew Jackson was was pro-slave. Right. So and so exactly. Uh, So why would Henry Clay undermine Jackson's chances of being elected by running? Well, uh, well, Henry Henry Clay hated Andrew Jackson both personally and politically. Um, They they both were were, uh, from the south. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that American politicians hated each other even Uh, in the beginning? This is not new. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to have to disagree. Uh, it's a killer. <laughs> I know it does. I, you know. All right, go I, ahead. I, I, yes, <laughs> yes, I know this, and most, and most, I think most Americans are aware that our, our politics has been contentious from the very start, in, including uh, the, the the creation of the American Constitution in 1787. Today, there's a sort of general and widespread worship of that Constitution. It's our founding document. It's sacred. It, we all are committed to it. But when the Constitution was passed in 1787, 1780, it was narrowly, between 1787 and 1789, had to be ratified by the states. It was narrowly ratified. There was tremendous opposition in this country to the Constitution. We have always had contentious government. Um, the salvation uh, ha- historically has been that though we've had contentious government except for one horrible episode, our civil war, we always managed That's to right. That's the it. hope, exactly. Back in a moment, I'm speaking to Fred Kaplan, brand new biography of John Quincy Adams, the sixth president. It is subtitled American Visionary, and the book is up at DennisPrager.com. everybody, Dennis Prager here, and this is an hour of history or history hour, which I periodically broadcast, because I am in love with history. Why am I in love with history? Because it explains where we are today. Also, you realize these people, you know, they lived a life that was as real as ours. They're, they're not, you have, as soon as you plug into that fact, it gets, it gets overwhelming. Wow. They were as real as I am. I know that sounds funny, but people don't think that way. It's like when we watch black and white uh, war films, it doesn't seem as real as color, but 
they were they were in color. Life was in color. Life was lived just like we are. The latest uh, book of history to be featured is this uh, Fred Kaplan, a professor at uh, CUNY, City University of New York, and he has written uh, John Quincy Adams, American Visionary. He specializes in biography and uh, the story of the man and the times. Every every epic in America is fascinating, and this uh, obviously is one of them in the contentiousness of the time. So now I'm going back and forth to, uh, with his life, with you, with your. So let me go to you now. Uh, I I've never written an, a biography. Uh, I'm writing my autobiography, and I'm really liking the guy I'm writing about. I have to say, I, I'm really getting to getting to like him. The, you're writing a bio. You wrote a biography. I mean, it's 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 immense. It's a 600 page biography of Quincy Adams. Happily, you write interestingly, so it's not an issue. But but it, it's obviously copious research. Did you get to like him? Uh, how, how does a biographer relate to his subject? In every in every case for me, I have begun with curiosity about my subject and with uh, the. Uh, potential for my awareness that there was a potential for my really respecting and admiring the subject. And my uh, vision of my role as a biographer is to give the person all in all, but to be as humanely and as empathetically sympathetic, uh, to try to see the world to some extent from the point of view of my subject, uh, to have faith in the principle that uh, all human beings share their humanness, for better and for worse, and uh, that when we get to know one another in, to- in, in the fullest way possible, uh, we, we can, without uh, evasion of weaknesses and flaws, we can gain respect for one another. Well, in the case of every one of my subjects, from uh, uh, Carlyle to Dickens to Henry James to Lincoln to John Quincy Adams, uh, I have indeed been uh, uh, developed deep, deep commitment to these people. Do you feel of, that you know him? I feel I feel that I know him. Wow! To the degree that you can know any other human being. No, that's that's and, huge. That's huge. And that's huge. And some people are harder to know than others. Some people have deep areas of reserve that is very deeply to crack. If you if, if you could speak through. to him, well, and you could ask him a question, what would you ask him? You know, if I could see him and ask him a question, I would say, uh, John John Quincy Adams. Uh, you accomplished so much in your lifetime, um, and in writing, reading, and writing about you, I have a, a sense, of course, that so much of your life had unhappy moments, times, years, situations, bitterness, and disappointment. What carried you through all this? And what generated your ability to keep going despite all the things that were dragging you backwards, personal depression? Mm -hmm. Which is what I asked you. I I asked you that question about him. Yes, and it's it's a difficult question to answer. Yeah, because he suffered so much. 
But he has an answer to it. He does have an answer to it. And this is the, the, the advice he gave to his sons and to everybody else when it was appropriate to give advice, and sometimes perhaps when it wasn't appropriate. And that was? And that was immersion in work. Wow. All right. We'll be back in a moment. How interesting. John Quincy Adams, the book up at DennisPrager.com. Fred Kaplan, the professor, the writer. You are listening to a History Hour. We continue in a moment on the Dennis Prager Show. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. 